What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verses 1 through 4 demonstrates that baptism is indeed a symbolic action, a burial with Christ. As we go into the watery grave, we're symbolizing that death with Christ. And yet, despite the symbolic nature of baptism, baptism is not mere symbolism. Very real things take place when we are baptized into Christ. At that moment, when our faith is perfected with obedience... We enter Christ. We enter His death. The old man is nailed to the cross and crucified with Jesus. It is put to death and it is taken away from us. Paul says, behold, all things have become new. We become new creatures in Christ. And we understand that God makes a very real change in the person before they're baptized into Christ and after. But not only does God make a change in us, taking us from being guilty sinners, being holy and forgiven in His sight, but He now expects a real change from us. In Romans 6, beginning at about verse 15, in fact, we could read the entire chapter, but just notice this. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God expects us to change now that He has changed us. And we find that theme throughout the New Testament repeatedly over and over and over again. In fact, Paul's letters to the Ephesians and to the Colossians very clearly talks about the changes that God expects to see in us. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 20. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 20, Paul wrote there, "...but you did not learn Christ in this way." If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of truth. We are to lay aside that old self. We are to put on the new self. We're supposed to change there is supposed to be some difference in our lives. If we keep reading in Ephesians chapter 4, we'll notice that it says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he'll have something to share with one who has need. 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The Scripture is very clear that we're to change. But did you notice one of the main themes in that changing? Repeatedly, the things that are talked about, one of the main issues is about our tongue. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word. And how many of these things, when it talks about the changes that we're supposed to make, how many of them hearken back to our tongues? If you look in the book of James, James demonstrates how important our tongue and control of it is. In James chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, the Scripture says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they'll obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet, excuse me, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a force to set a flame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. The Scripture here points out how important our tongue is and how detrimental it can be to us. I believe that James is using hyperbole when he says no man can tame the tongue as he's demonstrating what a great task and what great importance it is for us to get control of our tongues. To work on obeying God with our mouths. James said, you know, with that same mouth we praise God and then we curse men. He said, that just should not be. How many people make it to the assembly on Sunday, class on Wednesday night, and in those classes and in those worship assemblies, they praise God in song and prayer, and they listen to the, the sermon, and they talk about how great all those things are, but then come Monday morning, they're speaking evil to their neighbors at work or about their neighbors and their co-workers, their family. How easy it is for us to slip into the language of the world and talking like those in the world even after we've been here praising God and His creation. James says it shouldn't be like that. We've got to control our tongues. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at tonight. Here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, we want to take note of what this says about what our tongue should be and how we should change when we enter Christ. And how we should grow now that we've been in Christ for a while. I have no doubt 
that most of us have made changes regarding our speech since we became Christians. But let's make sure that we're rising up to that standard that God has set, that we're continuing to grow in that, that we're not being satisfied with being slightly better than we were when we were in the world, but that we're pressing on to attain the standard that Paul writes about here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Before we look more closely at this verse, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious Father in heaven, we are humbled because of your mercy and grace. We are amazed that you allow us to gather here to worship you. We are amazed that you have sent your word so that we could study it and understand. We pray that your spirit of grace will be with us, that you'll help us to understand your word, that you will help us to apply what we learn to our lives. Help us to control our tongues. Help us to use it as the rudder that steers our, the mighty ship that we are in your sea, that we might honor and glorify you with our mouths every day. Father, we love you and we're thankful that you have loved us. We're amazed that you have done so. And we're thankful for your Son who is the demonstration of that love. And because of that, we study your Word so that we can know how to serve and glorify you. And we pray that you would be with us in that. Through your Son we pray. Amen. As we take a look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, the first thing I want you to notice, it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The King James Version, I believe, says, let no corrupt word. When you consider that, that concept of wholesome or corrupt, yeah, excuse me, unwholesome or corrupt, you've actually got two sides of the same coin. The word translated here, I believe, is the Greek word sapros, and it is the same word that is used to describe a piece of fruit that has become rotten. Have you ever gone and bought bananas. And you know you've got to eat those within about 30 minutes. If they're, not, if they're not still green, you've got to eat those within about 30 minutes, otherwise they're going to go bad. And they start getting those brown spots and those black spots and you pull the peel off of them and it's, it's brown and nasty and soft and mushy and it's basically good for nothing but banana nut bread after that, which is not all bad. But... That corruption, that as, it, as it's rotting there, that's the word that's used here. And it's talking about our words. Corrupt. Unwholesome. We recognize corruption as that, that rottenness, that putrescence, that nastiness that sets into a piece of fruit. And Paul says, don't have any of that in your words, in your speech. Nothing that has corruption or rottenness in it. The New American Standard, using that unwholesome, looks at the other side, really, of the term, because when something starts rotting away, what's happening? It's eating away at the wholeness of whatever it is. And so our speech is supposed to be whole, that is, pure, undefiled. It should not have any rottenness in it. It should not be eaten away. There shouldn't be gaps and holes that have corruption in them in our speech. This concept of the fruit of our mouths is very important. Look in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 33, Jesus said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. 
For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. What Jesus points out here is that our words actually provide a window into our hearts. Words that we often utter and think that they don't mean anything. Oh, I didn't mean anything by that. You ever heard anybody say that? Somebody talks to him about their words. Oh, I didn't mean anything by that. I remember one time, this just absolutely flabbergasted. I was just absolutely amazed. We had a brother in Beaumont that was, that was struggling. And a couple of the elders, and he, he got, you will never believe this, but this brother got mad at me. And so a couple of the elders took me with them, and we went to go talk to him to find out what the problem was. And in the middle of that meeting, it, it really shifted from me to the, other, to the elders. And he started talking to them, upset with them too, and, and he, started, he just started cussing. And, and I mean what we would classify as the big words. And one of the elders just said, whoa, brother, we're just not going to talk like that. And he said, oh, come on, it's just us guys. I didn't mean anything by it. And yet what the Scripture says is these words that sometimes we may not mean anything by, the speech, the thoughtless words, the careless statements, the reckless language that we might use, Jesus says, well, you may not mean anything by it, but it certainly means something about our heart. Because our words are the fruit of what's going on in our heart. What comes out of our mouth demonstrates what is coming in through our eyes and our ears and filtering down into our heart. And so Jesus says, watch that. And get the heart right so that the mouth can be right. But Paul throughout Ephesians doesn't just tell us, let no unwholesome word. In fact, if we just left it at that, we might say, well, what, what kind of words? What kind of things are you talking about are corrupt or have rottenness in them? In Ephesians, Paul provides several examples. And I have no doubt that we're not going to have an exhaustive list here. But I'd like you to take a look at a few things that Paul demonstrates that we should not do in our speech. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, there are about six terms that Paul uses here. And we're going to look at some other passages as well. But the first six we want to note is here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. He says, let all bitterness be taken from you. And by the way, let me point out that as we take a look at these verse, uh, this verse, all of these terms that we're noticing in this verse can harken back to what Paul said in Galatians 5 where he said, don't bite and devour one another lest you be consumed by one another. These are the things that are part of that biting and devouring. And they will consume us and they will consume the body of Christ. How many churches have had problems that could have been overcome if people would have just controlled their tongues long enough to speak properly and appropriately with one another about the issues at hand. The first thing he says is, let all bitterness be put away from bitterness. The biting sarcasm intended most of the time to hurt. And how easy it is for us to be sarcastic at times. And I know that we like to have fun and I'm the worst. And we love to, to say things. We've just got to understand that we have to be careful now. If we have wicked intent with our sarcasm, that's certainly wrong. But even if we don't mean anything by it, we need to be careful. I can tell you about numerous times in my relationship, but probably the number, the number one 
is in my relationship with Marita. Now, you can talk to Marita and how many times that, you know, I'll just say things and I'm just kind of joking. I don't mean anything by it. I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know, poke a little fun and I'm, you know, it's just, oh, it's just, to me, you know, that's just because I love her. Just, you know, I feel comfortable. I'll make a little fun here or there. And finally, one day, she confessed that, uh, you know, that, that just really, um, doesn't, doesn't just anger, but hurts. And how many times can we have this kind of sarcasm and it's hurting people and we don't even know? Abiding sarcasm. We've got to be careful with that. He says, remove all the bitterness. When we're doing that because we resent somebody, when we're having that kind of passive-aggressive nature where we're really kind of ticked off at somebody, but we, we don't want to say it, and so we just kind of put in those little comments every now and again that... that we can say them in such a way that we can say we're joking, but we kind of half minute. it. You know what I'm talking about? You ever said anything in that way? That kind of bitterness and that resentful speech. Those are kind of things that should not be named among us. Then the next two are very similar. Wrath and anger. The word here for wrath refers to a boiling anger. Something that, that just boils up very quickly and then it explodes, and then it's, it's expressed, and then after that it just kind of subsides. It's, it's like that boiling water. It would be, it'd be the same term that would be used if you placed a, a pot of water on the stove and turned the heat on, and after just a few minutes it would just be erupting and boiling, but as soon as you remove the heat it calms back down. On the other hand, the word used here for anger is, is, is more a word that, that focuses on kind of a natural inclination of just constantly seething and anger and it's just rumbling there beneath the surface all the time. And it seems to me, as I've met people and talked to people about their tempers, that, that typically we fall in one or the other of these categories. We can either, one, have explosive anger, but we think that's okay because, hey, you know, the Bible says be done with it by in the morning. Well, when I wake up, I'm fine. But this passage says we shouldn't have that explosive kind of wrath. And we shouldn't be expressing that with our mouth. Other people take a look at those folks who explode and say, well, at least I'm not like that. But they just have that kind of natural tendency and they're just constantly always just right beneath the surface of that anger going all the time. And this demonstrates that neither one of those should be there. And so those kind of words, the, the explosive, angry words, and even those comments, that, that anger that just kind of goes beneath the surface and the words that that produces should not be named among us. It also says clamoring. Clamoring is just kind of that useless shouting and yelling. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 32, as it talked about the mob in Ephesus, it talked about them shouting one thing and some shouting another. That's the, that's the clamoring that's going on here. And it says that we shouldn't have that just kind of that, that shouting, that useless uh, kind of shouting going on. And, and, of course, I think a couple of us went whitewater rapping yesterday. And uh, James was in my boat and Kurt was in my boat and Matt was back there and you know, there were a couple of times that our guide was, she was just trying to be funny, talking about, oh, you know, we're all going to fall. But then as she would just shout out crazy, useless things, taking the Lord's name in vain, uh, you know, those, those kind of things, that clamoring, that useless, reckless, not giving thought to the kind of things I'm saying because I'm just being loud and boisterous and, and that sort of thing. I'm not talking about going to the Vols game or going to the Titans game. You can scream as much as you want there. But that useless loud, clamoring, taking the Lord's name in vain that's involved in that, just shouting useless, uh, noisy things, being boisterous. Those are the kind of things that we just have to get under control. And then it talks about slander and malice. 
And again, we have another issue where we see kind of opposite sides of the same coin. Both slander and malice are the issue of words that are designed to hurt. Slander, words that are designed to hurt, said behind somebody else's back. Malice, words that are designed to hurt, said to somebody's face. That kind of that, that hateful speech. And that shouldn't be a part of what we do. We also recognize in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25 that we are to lay aside falsehood. Lying should not be known among us as children of God. There were times when we were in the world when we fudged the facts, when we kind of glossed over the reality of what was going on. We wanted to try to kind of try to twist it so that it puts us in the best light. But we're Christians now. And so our yes should be yes and our no should be no and we shouldn't have to shore up everything we say with with O's, we should just speak the truth. We should lay aside falsehood. Lying should not be known among us. And I'll tell you, one of the places where I think we most have to learn this is we have to lay aside that deception that we often propagate when we're talking to other people about the gospel. When we kind of hold off and hold back because we don't really want to let them know right now what the Bible really says about the state of their soul. We just really need to be careful there if we're going to gloss that over. Because now we're not just dealing with our soul regarding our speech, but we're dealing with their soul as well if we're not going to speak the truth about what God's Word says about where they are in their relationship with Him. If you look down in Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, it says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. He says that we need to get rid of filthy things. There should be no filthiness. As we consider this, this is what would cover the issue of obscenities, curse words, words that people in our world use that we know and they know we should not use. And I realize, and you know, I've heard a lot of people discussing today about the nature of language, and I understand that a lot of the words are not just wrong all by themselves, but let's not fool ourselves. Our society views them as something Christians wouldn't say. And we ought not say them. The obscenities, the foul language that so fills our entertainment today and sometimes filters into our hearts and comes out through our mouths in those moments when we slam our finger with a hammer or somebody closes the door on our hand and out those words come. And I'm certainly not going to stand in judgment over you for those kind of things, but I just want you to think that if those words weren't in our heart, they wouldn't come out of our mouths. Filthy words, obscene words, obscenities, dirty jokes, those kind of things should not be among us. Then it talks about foolish talking. And this is just a very interesting phrase as we think about this, wondering what this means. And it causes me to think about Psalm 14 and verse 1. Psalm 14 and verse 1 says to us, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here, the kind of godless, impious language. Language that is used that mistreats and abuses God and His nature, treats Him with disdain, treats Him disrespectfully. That is foolish talking. Because at the heart, what makes a fool a fool 
is his impiety and unbelief regarding our great God in heaven. And he says that kind of language needs to be removed. Do I need to add to what Brother Bowman said when our, in our meeting as he talked about the use of God's name in vain? That has become so common. And brethren, if I might also point out to you, I, I had a friend in Beaumont that we talked, I talked to about this. It, it just amazed me. Now, he would never, he, if you asked him, will you take the Lord's name in vain? Absolutely not. But things would happen. He would say, oh my God. And I just had to ask, do you really think that you're not taking the Lord's name in vain just because you don't add the D? I mean, what do we think we're doing there? Everybody who's heard us added the D. And I recognize when we take a look at words that we would often call euphemisms, like gosh and geez and golly. And I understand the etymologies and all those things and that we recognize that those words have to deal with growing language and all that. But you know, look those words up in the dictionary. See what the dictionary says about them. And whether or not these kind of words that are in pious reference to our God in heaven are words that we should be using considering the fact that God says that we need to remove the impious and foolish talking from us because it's corrupt, it's unwholesome as we consider them. Just, just look them up sometime. Don't take my word for it. Look them up in the dictionary and see what it says those words mean. And then the final one it says is, of course, jesting. I think the King James just says jesting, which is unfortunate because it's left in the mind of some people that it's wrong to have any fun, that it's wrong to... to say any jokes, and that's not what it's talking about here at all. It is talking about coarse jesting. It's talking about obscene jesting. It's talking about rivalry and vulgar and base and crude humor. It's talking about that water cooler type jokes, gym locker room type stories that we might tell just among us guys. And I don't know about you ladies, what you guys talk about when you get together, but guys, y'all know what I'm talking about when I say you know how the guys talk when they get together. Those kind of things, that jesting... Um, using the base and vulgar things as a source of humor. That just should not be named among us. And how much of us spend our time watching that on television, listening to the comedians, if that's all that they're talking about, those are the kind of things that should not be a part of us. Paul said, let no unwholesome word, no unwholesome word, not just, well, don't let too many unwholesome words, but let no unwholesome word be named among you. Don't let that come out of your mouth. But he didn't just talk about what we shouldn't do. Then in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, he mentioned what we should do. And there's three things that I want you to notice here. He says, first of all, only such a word as is good for edification. Y'all have heard the lessons. Y'all have been in the Bible classes that talked about this word edification. And we recognize the word edify. And we understand that that word is from the same family that produces the word edifice. Y'all know what an edifice is? This thing that we're sitting in here tonight, this is an edifice. It's a building. And all of this family of words are related to that concept of building things. And he says, only such words that are good for edification. We are supposed to be edificers. That means we're supposed to be builders. We should not be a demolition crew, but rather remodelers. A construction crew. 
People who, with our words, come into the lives of other people and build them up. Making them better because of the things that we've said to them. In this context, I don't believe edify is restricted to spiritual things. Sometimes we recognize edification as a reference to growing in spiritual maturity, but other times, edifying is just the idea of doing what builds up. We don't say things that tear people down. We say things that build people up. And we've got to be asking ourselves, the thing that I am about to say, is that going to build people up? Or is that going to tear people down? Because I am supposed to be an edifier, an edificer, a builder, a remodeler, a construction worker, not a demolition crew with the words that I say. But he goes on and says, according to what, according to the need of the moment. This is very important. Because it demonstrates that before we open our mouths, what have we got to do? We have to open our ears. How are we going to know what is needed for that moment? We have to listen. We have to pay attention to what is going on around us. We have to pay attention to what others are saying to us. If we're spending all of our time while other people are speaking, just thinking about what I'm going to say next, there is no possible way for me to speak according to the need of the moment. The only way we can do that is when we first listen and open our hearts to others to hear what they're saying, to understand what they're saying and what they're thinking and where they are. Because then we can build up offering what is needful in that moment. And, you know, I will say this. you know sometimes what is needful in the moment? To just be quiet. There are times when what is needed at that moment is for us to just keep our mouths shut. And when you have figured out exactly when all those moments are, please let me know because I get it wrong all the time. But I tell you, there, we've just got to learn that there are times when the edifying thing is to just be quiet. But when we do speak, we've got to make sure that we are addressing the need at the moment so that we can build up and not tear down. And then he concludes it by saying that it may give grace to those who hear. What is grace? Grace is a gift. We've talked about grace before. We know that grace is something that's given to somebody that they may not deserve. Do you realize what this is saying? This is saying that our words are supposed to be like a gift to somebody. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 11. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 11. What a great statement is made there. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstance. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. That's kind of a concept of jewelry. Would you all like to receive something that's gold and silver? Somebody walked up to you and said, I've got a gift for you, and they handed you something that was pure gold or, or, or solid silver. Would that be awesome? 
Would that be great? Would you appreciate that? Of course it would. Paul is basically saying here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 that when we speak to other people, that's what our words should be like. It should be like giving them a wrapped up present that they get to open up and be joyful that they have received. Wouldn't that be great if in our homes every day the speech between husband and wife was one that was like receiving a gift constantly? That we're glad we have received that. I realize, of course, that in speaking wholesome words, that sometimes we're going to have to say hard things that don't seem joyful in the moment. I understand that. Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I understand that there are going to be things that we say at the moment that the person hearing it may not really feel like they have received a gift, but if we're going to be saying something like that, we ought to be able to say, but here's where it's going to lead and here's why it is a gift. And they don't get it now, but they'll get it one day. It needs to be a gift. But just like the unwholesome speech, Paul left us with examples of what is wholesome, of what is pure, of what is undefiled. In fact, if you look in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, that big verse that we looked at six terms in verse 31, he followed it up with some terms of language that we ought to use as he talked about wholesome, pure, and graceful speech, edifying and necessary. He says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I'd like for you to also look at a passage in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 is that Colossians deals with a lot of the same things that Ephesians deals with. And here's another list. It says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And so as we look at the kind of speech that we ought to have, it ought to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, humble, gentle, and patient. Do you realize what this says about the words that we speak? It points out that our speech to other people is not about putting them in their place. It's not about setting ourselves up on high as being the intelligent and great people that, oh, if they could be just like us, and we're just constantly slamming them into their place. It's the gentleness, the humility, setting them up as more important than us. That when we come to them, it's not about, it's not about you have to be just like me. It's about we're trying together to be like Christ. And we're both on this journey together. We may be at different parts. We may be facing different struggles. But we're all together here. And so as we're talking about these things, it needs to be as a gift. Humble. Gentle. Patient. Kind. Forgiving. And tender-hearted. Can we grasp those concepts in our lives and our speech? How hard that is. Because so easy it is for us to just get caught up in ourselves and what we're wanting and thinking about ourselves and other folks just get in our way. And how irritating and annoying that is, especially if it's our spouse or our kids. And yet, even when speaking to them, this is the kind of speech that we ought to have.
But in contrast to the lying that we gave up, we recognize that Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's an interesting thing. This, of course, I think is dealing specifically with brethren, though we're supposed to tell the truth to everybody. But you notice the reason why. Because we are members of one another. Because the reality is, if I am lying to you, I'm lying to a part of me. That's how close we are. We're members of the body together. We're not just members of this body individually. We are members of one another. And lies hurt, no matter what we think they are. In other words, most think about this. Most of the time, when do I lie? When I'm trying to protect myself, right? What Paul is saying is, the only way you really protect yourself is by telling the truth. That's it. Because when you lie to somebody else to protect yourself, eventually it comes back and it causes problems. Because we're members of one another. He says, tell the truth. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. When you make a commitment, stick with it because we're truth tellers. Don't make commitments carelessly. Oh yeah, I'll do that without giving thought to it. Tell the truth. And again, I just have to repeat this again. There's no more important place than that than it comes to the issue of talking to folks about their sins. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11 it says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. We're supposed to expose unfruitful deeds of darkness, not be involved in covering them up by lying about them. We've got to tell folks the truth. Telling them the truth with love. Telling them the truth kindly, tenderheartedly with forgiveness in our heart, wanting them to be forgiven humbly, gently, patiently, but telling them the truth. And then, of course, we think about Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 18, it says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. When we consider the speech that is wholesome, without corruption, there are two things in these verses that we've just read. The first is, proclaiming the gospel. It is always right for us to teach people the gospel. It's always wholesome to teach people what the Bible says about our lives and about our relationship with God. And that really, brethren, needs to be a part of what we do. And you don't have to do it the same way I do. You don't have to use the lessons that I might use, but there's got to be something in your life about getting that gospel message out to family, to friends, to co-workers. I'll tell you, here's something that you might try. We, I know that for a lot of us, it is just so, we're just absolutely frightened to death to get involved in a Bible study. 
where we were supposed to have five lessons and we're supposed to have all the answers to all these questions about these issues that will lead them to get baptized. How about trying this sometime? Instead of, instead of talking to somebody like, oh, hey, I'm going to have a Bible study with you as though I am this great teacher who knows all and is now going to impart great wisdom to you. What if we just ask folks, hey, would you like to get together and read the Bible with me sometime? And just sit down with them and read the Gospel of Mark. And just talk about it. Don't have to know the answer to every question. In fact, what will hopefully happen is questions come up that you both have to dig and study and learn together. Now imagine what would happen by the time you got done reading the Gospel of Mark. Do you think somebody might have learned the Gospel plan of salvation just from reading the Bible? I think one of our biggest fears is that we have the idea that the Gospel is not the power of God to save people from their sins. I have to be that. I have to know all the answers because I have to be the power of God to save people from their sins. And that's just not the case. The Gospel is the power of God. And if we just sat down and read with them, just looking at the Bible, being honest when we don't know the answers to the questions, setting it together, guess what's going to happen? Some of them will obey. Not all. We already know that only few will follow. But some of them will. And if they don't, at least we've done our job of proclaiming that gospel to them. Always right to do that. Always wholesome when we're teaching the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. But there was another thing in that passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and that is prayer. In fact, in the passage in Ephesians 5 where it said, don't have filthiness or silly talk or coarse, coarse jesting, it said, but rather giving of thanks. Instead of the impious, godless talk, taking God's name in vain, reckless speech that doesn't give thought to how obscene or frivolous it might be, it says, give thanks. Words that honor and praise God. Words that glorify Him in prayer. Confession, supplication, praise and adoration. These are things that we can offer to God and they are always right. Always wholesome to give thanks to God, to pray to Him, to confess our sins to Him. Always right. These are the kind of things that need to be a part of our speech as we allow no unwholesome word to come out of our mouths, but only what is good for edification that it may give grace and supply what is needed at that moment. There's the standard of God. And let's remember how important this is. Let me remind you, Matthew chapter 12, let's read it again so that we can see how important it is. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our words are important. We will give account for that. And if you flip just a page over or maybe two and you get to chapter 13 and verse 47, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but they threw the bad away. 
So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They threw the bad away. Guess what that is? The corrupt. The unwholesome. Sometimes we can believe that we became Christians, we got baptized, and therefore, everything is okay. God made all the changes and I don't have to do anything. But this parable points out to us that a time of judgment is coming. The dragnet has gathered us all in. There's going to become a point that the unwholesome and corrupt are thrown away. It is imperative that we purify ourselves by the grace of God. And one of the places we have to start is with our heart and what comes out of our mouths. If we want to be a part of those fish that are gathered in instead of being thrown away. That's how important it is. How are you doing with your speech? Would you pull out your songbook, please? Number 564, follow me. Number 564. Remember where we started in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, as we talked about the change that God works in those who are baptized into Christ. Have you allowed God to work that change in your life yet? The reality is, you can go from here tonight and say, oh, I've got to get my speech in line and get that all changed and make all those changes. And you can do that. Excuse me. You can do that. But if you haven't allowed God to work the change in you that cleanses your sins, it's not going to do any good. God wants to change you from lost sinner to forgiven saint. If we can help you with that tonight, submitting to Jesus Christ in baptism, won't you come right now as we stand and sing, Follow Me, number 564.